Let me tell you a little bit of my study day. I chase more rabbits today uh, than there are rabbits. And I brought three of my favorite uh, resources with me just so that you could see them. Uh, I did not bring uh, a resource that I consult regularly because it's a blog. Uh, it's uh, David Jeremiah's blog. And while I don't agree with him on all aspects of the end times, um, I, if you embrace uh, his point of view, it is solid. It is absolutely solid. And I, I don't disagree with him uh, violently. He just he assumes uh, some things that set in motion a lot of other things. And that's true with anything. And we uh, we were joking before we went on camera that uh, in, in a lot of things that we would study, how we want things to end up determines what we believe about the journey to get there. Uh, our, our, our confirmation bias is very real when we talk about biblical prophecy. And I'll, I'll remind you that, that we have talked about uh, several different points of view as to how you interpret Revelation. Some of you remember those, the, the preterist point of view that, uh, that assumes that everything that happens in Revelation happened in the first century or immediately followed. And that would say that every symbol that we see in Revelation is Rome or Babylon or the emperor or the Persians or the Parthians. Uh, even tonight, when we talk about one of the horsemen with the bow, the Parthians were famous for their skill with the bow. And so the, the preterist point of view uh, assumes that it all was in the first century. The, the historicist point of view assumes that it it represents history from the beginning of the church until the end of time. And uh, and that would uh, almost indicate uh, some things and and some <laughs> point out that uh, that that once you make a decision as to how you will interpret Revelation, it's very difficult to be objective about some of the symbolism. And this week we're talking about symbolism. So I I don't want to I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I love David Jeremiah. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, parts of the Left Behind stuff, um, but I I find it a little difficult for me because it seems like everybody who wants to uh, make charts and graphs and say that we are in the the end of the church time. Um, I, Jesus said we're not supposed to know all that. And so I, I, I hesitate to, to lay out charts and graphs. And, and so the historicists love to do that. Um, the futurist, it's all in the future. And so we're in the, the beginning of, of the church days. And that doesn't make a lot of sense either because we've been in the church days for the last 2,000 years. Of course, with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And then, of course, the idealist or the uh, probably represent the camp that I'm in, that there are there there is a combination of literal uh, that there. I believe there were seven literal churches that were addressed in the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, I I don't necessarily believe that a dragon is literal. I don't necessarily believe that the the ten horns of the beast are literal. That uh, that perhaps they represent some things that were uh, guidance to the churches in the first century, guidance to the churches in all the centuries between then and now, and guidance to churches that will ever be. Uh, I I hesitate to ascribe any uh, meaning to the events that are going on in Israel. Uh, every time there's a conflict in the Middle East, we identify another different antichrist. And so I, I want us to stay, um, or, or I, 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 don't, I don't want you to do anything that's outside of your study and your, 
your comfort with prophecy, but 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 where I stay is that I am I take prophecy very very seriously. I am very sure that the things that God says are going to happen in here are going to happen, and I am very sure that beginning in chapter four in Revelation, where the scene shifts from earth to heaven, and then in chapter six, we are we are describing the great tribulation. We are describing horrible things that are going to happen on earth. Does the church experience those horrible things? Some say yes and some say no. Uh, as I said on Sunday, there are a lot of people who believe that the transition between chapter 3 and chapter 4 represents the rapture. That the, that the word church is not mentioned anymore after chapter 3. And so if the church is not mentioned anymore, when the scene shifts to heaven, then the assumption is that the church has shifted to heaven, that, that Christians have been raptured and will escape everything that's described in chapter 6 through 20. Others say that's pretty arrogant to think that, that, that all of the, all of the, 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 uh, terrible things that even churches have perpetrated all the all of the the sinful things that that supposedly godly people have done including me that the that 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 we would escape all of god's judgment that we would never get a taste of what we've been saved from so some say some say uh, okay, it's it's oh, we're we're not sure if the church is raptured uh, prior to the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation. Um, we're not sure how many years we can ascribe to the tribulation, although most people land on seven or three and a half, <laughs> because seven would be a complete number, three and a half would be. Uh, a partial number in, in numerology in the scripture and at least in Revelation fractions are always bad there are good numbers 2, 4, uh, 7 10, 12 there are bad numbers, any fraction 4200 is a bad number because that represents three and a half years so the, there, there's a lot of symbolism and I don't want you to hear me say I don't take the symbolism seriously. I do. There will be horrible things that happen on earth. There will be uh, uh, there there will be a a clear hostility that is beyond anything that we in America can imagine. We 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 have trouble getting our minds around two hundred young adults at a music festival. And in a matter of hours, they are butchered and raped and beheaded and kidnapped and dismembered. We, we, we can't imagine that savagery in, in our borders. And yet the scripture says this, this kind of thing is going to happen. That's, that's representative of the evil that is uh, that, that that God holds back on a regular basis, and when we peek through the curtain to see what men are capable of, we get just a taste of what Revelation is talking about. So remember that our approach will, in some ways, guide how we interpret the symbols, and that's how we view the millennial reign and how we view the great tribulation and how we view when the uh, when the church will be delivered. Is it before any of the tribulation happens? Are some going to be left uh, to endure the tribulation as the scripture seems to suggest? If so, who? If so, why? When will Jesus return at the end of the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation? Will he return with the church? You're going to be really disappointed because I'm not going to answer any of those questions. Because most of them depend on where you start 
kind of dictates where you finish. So let's look at the scripture. Um, we've already looked at some of the symbols, right? Um, we looked at a door standing open in chapter four. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the three resources that you did reference and the one that you didn't. What are the three that you did? Say that again. You said that for your study, right, what we're about to start to unpack, what are the three references? So this is Leon Morris's commentary on Revelation. It's from the Tyndall New Testament series. Morris is a little bit of an old uh, soul scholar. He's been around for a very long time, and uh, this is an InterVarsity Press, so he is not going to get uh, overly excited about graphs and charts uh, but he's going to take prophecy very seriously. Um, one of the most respected scholars, he's now deceased, uh, Bruce Metzger. Um, he uh, wrote this little book called Breaking the Code. And it's one of the best books I've ever seen on Revelation. And it's not very uh, thick. And so uh, I'll actually use his outline to uh, break down how we're going to look at the scripture on Sunday. And so he, for instance, his uh, uh, Revelation 6 through 8, he just calls opening the seven seals of God's scroll. And so he wants us to know that the four horsemen are to be seen as a group uh, more than to parse out what the uh, black horse is and the white horse is and the red horse is. He, he, he wants us to see things in groups rather than to try to uh, um, overanalyze. This is my friend and colleague, Gerald Stevens. And Gerald is uh, a preeminent Greek scholar. And he and I were on faculty together in New Orleans. And um, he's done a commentary on Revelation and a commentary on Acts. And if you uh, just to, to give you a, a sense of uh, Gerald, um, the actual commentary on the verses is this part right here. It takes him that long to get there. <laughs> so he is a true example of you ask him what time it is. He tells you how to build a watch. <laughs> And so the historical context is very important to Gerald, and it's it's great reading to, to understand the, um, the the nuances of the the emperors and so forth and so on. Um, and and and, and uh, as far as tonight, Gerald was extremely helpful because he basically breaks down where we're going tonight into. He says the, the best way to understand this big block of scripture that we're looking at tonight is that there is a vision and a judgment in the first three chapters, followed by a vision and a judgment for the next 16 chapters. And so the, the church cycle, the vision of the churches and the judgment on the churches and then the vision of the world and the judgment on the world. And so however you look at the tribulation event, it is God judging the sin in the world. And what we know and, and what Gerald says that's, that's so important to me, he says that chapters 6 through 11 are what he calls the Christ cycle, meaning that However you look at the symbols, if you look at them any way except through the lens of the cross, you're, you're way off base. Because this judgment is horrible, but it lets you know what Christ died for. The, 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 the wrath of God unleashed is horrible, but through the cross, he has, he has restrained that wrath. It says on uh, Isaiah said, and the, the iniquity of us all was poured on him. And so we, the, the, the Christ cycle, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go there so I don't run out of time. Um, the Christ cycle is, and 
there's a graphic that I'm going to send all of you um, on the screen. You can see it. Uh, it's the uh, the breakdown of, of where the the Christ cycle uh, involves the first six seals. And of course, there are seven seals on the scroll that was uh, that only the lamb was worthy to open. Right. Who is worthy to to open the seals uh, to, and read the scroll? And, and what is the scroll? I think uh, last week I told you that that my favorite interpretation of the scroll in Revelation four and five is that it's it, it was easy for me to remember because I'm a simple man. Yeah, that that a scroll represented a deed or a will. Uh, that 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 the scrolls were 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 letters, yes, but a formal scroll that was sealed was a deed to a piece of property, a deed to something tangible, or a will in the uh, idea of a last will and testament. And if you think about God's will. You think about his plan for the universe, his plan for mankind, his his plan for humanity that that would start with creation and the fall and the prophets and the history and the poems and and then uh, the time of the prophets where there was a uh, a a prophetic utterance against sin, the cycle of the of sin and deliverance. That was uh, brought to culmination with Jesus's death, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his promised return. That, that, that all of that is God's plan for humanity, his will, his will and testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament. So, so if I remember that the scroll is the will of God, who is worthy to open the scroll? Why was John weeping about it? Because he was uh, momentarily distressed that God's will, God's plan for the ages would be subverted because there was no one worthy to open the scroll. Who's worthy to open the scroll? The Lamb of God. Worthy is the Lamb of God who was what? Slain. And in, in later chapters, when, when the return of the king is depicted, he has blood on his robe. But it's not the blood of his enemies that he's conquered. It's his own blood that he has shed for us. And so the symbolism, if we if we understand it any way except through the lens of the cross, we're way off base. And I liked uh, Dr. Stevens' uh, portrayal of the Christ cycle, which involves the first six seals, the interlude, the 144,000 Jews who are sealed, do we know what that means? No. It's 12,000 from each tribe. 12 is a good number. 1,000 is a good number. 12,000 is a great number. 144,000 is a great number times a great number. So all we really need to delve into. We can we can count how many letters are in Henry Kissinger's name, and it wasn't helpful back in the 60s. It's not helpful now. <laughs> the numbers in Revelation are symbolic of good and evil, of, of a time of perseverance, a time of victory. And so it, it's not helpful to us to try to to uh, uh, figure out that, that that there are some that are very like Robert talked about last Sunday that the four corners of the earth represent all of the earth north south east west that there that there's a that four is a good number and it's a complete number and and so there were uh, four um, beasts um, what do we call them. Uh, around the throne, four living creatures was what it said in, in chapter four. And so just as an overview, and then we'll dive into the verses until we don't have any more time. The Christ cycle is chapters six through 11. Seals one through four, followed by seal number five, followed by seal number six. We see those 
in rapid succession in chapter six. Um, I opened one of the seven seals and uh, the uh, first horse, the white horse, the second seal, the red horse, the third seal, the black horse, the fourth seal, the pale horse. Do they all represent something? Absolutely. I'll tell you about Jeremiah's uh, uh, thoughts about that. And I don't I don't have any problem with what he said, uh, because it, the, the, the symbolism of the horses doesn't really uh, speak into pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation or preterist or historicist or futurist or idealist. It, it just says these are these based on the language in the scripture. And I know I'm going all over the place. The scripture is the best commentary on the scripture. Not even all these great resources. The scripture is the best commentary. So, so it was meant to be uh, read aloud it was meant to be embraced, and so I'll, I'll get into that in just a second. Then there's, after chapter 6, the six seals are open. So the scroll had seven seals on it. Each seal represented something. The first four represented horses. The fifth seal represented the souls of the martyrs. The sixth seal uh, represented the uh, natural uh, expression of the wrath of God. So earthquakes, lightning, thunder, the moon became like blood. 17 summarizes, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? So the six seals are opened. Now there's a commercial break. There's an interlude. He says, verse 7, chapter 1, after this, I saw four angels, again, at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. You see how, how God's wrath is being held back by supernatural? And it's a complete uh, picture, four corners of the earth, four angels, four winds being held back. Then there was a fifth angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called to a loud voice the four angels who have been uh, given power uh, to harm the earth and sea. He says, don't until we've sealed the servants. So there is a picture in the first, uh, first four seals of the, the, the type of wrath that is to come. And, um, Jeremiah calls that, okay, the um, the horses, the white horse is the Antichrist, the red horse is war and bloodshed, the black horse is famine, the pale horse is pestilence and death. So, and, and uh, whether the Antichrist is represented, we know that war and conquest are presented, that, that people are going to be conquered. People are going to be subjugated. People are going to be attacked. People are going to be held hostage. And of course, this week we had a very real uh, vision of what that might look like. So whether it's it's the Antichrist, it's certainly representative of everything that is anti-Christ. Um, and then so he, he there's a, a symbolism with all of the, the horses. Of course, red is as a color in Revelation is always war and bloodshed. The colors have symbols too. I'll give you a chart um, as soon as I get it finished. So that gives way to the Lamb of God once again. The 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 metaphor of the Lamb of God, the the pale horse was death and Hades. They were given over authority to kill with the sword, pestilence, wild beasts. And then the shift of the scene to heaven with the fifth and sixth seals, with the martyrs and the natural disasters. And then the, the interlude, which says that we're going to, we're not going to let this, this harm go on and on because, um, we need to make sure that the that those that God has set apart are sealed. 
So interesting verse here in chapter seven. He he says, I heard the number sealed 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There have been groups that said those are literal numbers, that there's only 144,000. Well, think about the difference in the population of the earth when this was written and now. You know, the, 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 the population of planet earth, when John saw a vision that said 144,000, and he said 12,000 from each tribe, um, I, I don't take that as a literal number. I take it as a complete number that that all of Israel who will acknowledge the Messiah are going to be sealed. All of Israel uh, and, and maybe some that don't acknowledge the Messiah until they are sealed. I don't know how God is going to do that. Yeah. Quick question. Um, just the, what I've heard, just wanted to get your opinion on it. The 144,000 I heard were Messianic Jews that become like missionaries and spread the gospel all throughout the world. And then many, many, many more millions are saved, but that's where I thought that number would come from. Could be. Could be. I, I want to be very cautious about assigning precision. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I also don't want to disavow the fact that God said he was going to save the Jews. He, he said they were his chosen people. And and he didn't really it, when when he made the covenant with Abraham, it was a unilateral covenant. It was uh, it, it, if you remember Genesis chapter 12, that the vision that Abraham had, he that uh, that that he saw a fire going between the halves of the sacrifice and that usually that that ritual was two men who had made an agreement about a piece of land or about a daughter to be married or about whatever they would slaughter an animal and walk through the halves of the animal to say may this happen to us if either should break the covenant well when Abram had the dream of the two and the parts of the animal slaughtered, only the flame went through the middle. Only God's representation went through the middle. There was no other party. So there was a unilateral covenant. God said, I will do these things. Then after the ark, he said, I will never again flood the earth. So the, the covenants that God makes are not dependent on our response. They are they are God in his sovereignty, God in his will, God in his ways, and they are sometimes mysterious. So, Gloria, I don't rule it out. I don't rule it out that there would be some uh, faithful Jews who had the, the light turned on that Messiah was Jesus, and, uh, and they would... They would come to him, but the sovereign God I serve reserves the right to do it any way he wants to do it. And and if he's saving Jews that I don't think ought to be saved, I probably ought to look in the mirror and see another one that shouldn't be saved. I think the Jehovah's Witness relates that number. To Literally. But I don't know what they're They think there's a literal 144,000. That's all it's going to be. Yeah. Um, which is awkward because there's more than 144,000 of them now. I think if you thought it was pretty much capacity, I'd quit knocking on doors. <laughs> I want to tell you about something in theory. <laughs> All right, well, that's that's awful. I'm sorry, I repent. <laughs> so, the the 144,000 is followed by a beautiful picture of diversity in heaven. It says in verse nine of chapter seven, and after this, after we acknowledge the sealing of the Jews. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in our hands. You don't need me to tell you the symbolism that's there. The palm branches, Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, clothed in white, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. And so wrap that back around. I don't know who 144,000 Jews are. I know they're Jews. I, or they represent Jews. Or they're going to be Jews. Because God has chosen the Hebrew people as his own. Why did he do that? I don't know. How have they uh, survived all these years? It defies human understanding. But they are sealed. And then beyond them stretches as far as you can see. Maybe they are evangelists. Maybe they are. Uh, all I know is that they are sealed. And that the wrath cannot be unleashed until they are sealed. So there is some kind of protection of a remnant. And some kind of recognition that. And this reinforces the people that say that. The rapture happens before all this because they're they're sealed if they're in heaven, right? They're protected. The wrath of God on earth can't hold them back. Well, the other side of the coin is why does he need to hold it back if they're in heaven? And so there is, again, the point of view that you choose. What we do know is that the wrath of God is being held back until the Lamb of God is satisfied that the uh, that the multitude, the great multitude has come to him. And then seal number seven is opened after the interlude. Um, we uh, first we have um, first uh, chapter eight, verse one. Um, the lamb opened the seventh seal and there was a silence in heaven. I picture a stunned silence. The full will of God has now been revealed. No, no more seals holding the scroll shut. The, the seals have been identified as to their meaning, and now the scroll has been unrolled so that we can see. Remember, it has writing on both sides of it. It's complete. There's no more room for any more plans. This is the complete will of God now being revealed to man, now being revealed to the heavens, now being revealed to Satan, now being revealed uh, to all. So the lamb opened the seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, half is bad, right? <laughs> there's, there's something terrifying about the fact that this thing is now open. So now we have a, another set of symbols the six trumpets followed by an interlude followed by the seventh trumpet. If that's a rich princess in India that wants to marry you. Um, so does that pattern seem familiar? Yeah, it's a, it's a repetition of the pattern with the seals. Six seals interlude seventh seal when the seventh seal is opened now we have six trumpets an interlude seventh trumpet and that ends the christ cycle so that carries us all the way uh through chapter 11 and i'll i'll, I'll stop with a couple of them uh verse uh chapter 8 verse 6 the seven angels prepared to blow them the first angel blew his trumpet and there was hell and fire. Um, I'll give you uh, Dr. Jeremiah's uh, thoughts of those. Um, Which reference book, Alan, is that from Dr. Jeremiah? That his book it's his blog. It's his, it's his blog. blog that I found online. Um, okay. So in Chapter 7, chapter 8, seven angels stood before God, seven trumpets were given to them. 
Another angel stood at the altar with a golden censer or a, an incense, uh, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. You remember that in chapter 4 uh, and 5, the prayers of the saints were uh, uh, likened to incense. The smoke of the incense rose uh, before God, and so now here come the trumpets. Um the first trumpet um devastation on the earth hail fire uh, uh all the food sources are 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 going away this is the the terrible things that are going to happen um second trumpet uh, a third of the world's salt water turns to blood third trumpet a third, uh, I'm sorry, second trumpet, a third of the, the salt water turns to blood. Third trumpet, a third of the world's fresh water turns bitter. You, you can uh, see those. Fourth trumpet, uh, extreme decrease in temperature. You think climate change? I'll show you climate change. Uh, atmospheric disruption. Fifth trumpet, Satan and his demons swarm the earth. That's getting into Revelation chapter 9. Chapter 9, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Well, we've heard all of our lives that Lucifer was an angel who fell. And so he, uh, the star fell from heaven. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened it from the shaft hell it's it's a clear depiction and then from the smoke here comes satan and his demons and so the the earth is given over evil uh the sixth trumpet four evil angels wreak havoc killing a third of the world's population seventh trumpet okay we have an interlude first so verse uh nine um the sixth angel blew his trumpet um, here come the, the four evil angels. They were bound at the river Euphrates. So the four angels who've been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Verse 15, chapter nine. So we get this battle. And then verse 20 at the end of chapter nine says those who were killed, not killed by the plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. So there, this, there was an evangelistic purpose to some of this havoc. And there were still some who didn't repent. So then a mighty angel, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1, this is the, the interlude between uh, the sixth angel and the seventh angel. So an angel, a mighty angel, came from heaven, Wrapped in cloud, a rainbow over his head. His uh, face was like the sun. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. He called out with a loud voice like a lion. So we, we know that this is messianic. We know that there's a at least a, a representation here of the Lion of Judah. Uh, though we're not supposed to think this is necessarily Jesus because the lion has become a lamb. So that we have the interlude, and then we have trumpet number seven, um, chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? You might have sung it at Christmas. And now the 24 elders. So, so the scene has shifted to heaven again. The second woe, verse 14, ahead of this, the second woe is past, the third woe is to come. And so now the shifts uh, to heaven. We have a, a trumpet number seven. And right after that, the scene shifts to the dragon cycle versus chapter 12 through chapter 20. And chapter 12 starts with a woman and a dragon. The woman is Israel. The dragon is Satan. 
A great sign appeared, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars, 12 tribes, Israel. So now we have the, the dragon cycle, which represents pretty much the same story as the Christ cycle. That the sovereignty of God is in control. It's being held back to an extent, but now it's not being held back as much. So the dragon represents the, the war. Uh, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. So we've, we've got this heavenly battle. Some would call this Armageddon. So there, a war arose uh, 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 in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and the angels fall, fought back, but he was defeated. So there we have the, the, the sealing of the multitudes, a great multitude. And they, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So if this is the church returning uh, to do battle with Michael and the archangels, or if this is the witnesses that are that are left on heaven, uh, we, we see a, a clear line uh, with the demonic. And now we have um, another cycle of uh, seven. So we have the dragon, we have the beast, um, the Verse thir uh, chapter 13, verse 1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, two crowns. That uh, word for crown is certainly not the heavenly crown. It's not the, uh, and the blasphemous names. Um, and so he describes the beast. Um, it, it continues to talk about the, the war that's being made. Uh, on earth between the forces of heaven, the forces of Satan. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So are we in heaven or are we on earth? We, we don't know. Authority was given it temporarily over every tribe, people, language, nation. So it's a parallel language to all those who were sealed uh, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain. And then he gives a warning very similar to what he told to each of the churches. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So we've got all this raging symbolism that's going on. And uh, this, this cycle has the... Uh, another uh, interlude, uh, another set of 44, uh, we, we mentioned the 144,000 again, um, verse four, chapter 14, and they the scene is in heaven, they are worshiping, they've not defiled themselves, uh, they follow the lamb wherever he goes, they are the first fruits, then the angels, uh, the, the earthly angels, um, um, who pronounced the uh, the fall of Babylon, which could represent Rome. It could represent um, uh, civilization, secular civilization. It could represent uh, uh, basically anything that sets itself up as God, uh, which Rome did. Of course, the emperor worship. So then there's a, a harvest, and then we start another cycle with seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls of God's wrath. And then we are reminded of the great prostitute and the beast in 17. But I'm only going through 13 uh, this week. And next week, I'll deal with judgment. So let's back up for a minute. I confess I have thoroughly confused you. What I'd love for you to remember is that to me, the best way 
to interpret Revelation is what I'm going to call a fifth approach beyond the preterist and beyond the historicist, uh, beyond the idealist, beyond the futurist. And I'm going to call this Michael Gorman uh, in, uh, in his book, he called it the pastoral prophetic approach. He said, yes, revelation is prophecy. Yes, it's poetic. Yes, it's theological. Yes, it's historical. But what he said was, this approach views revelation primarily as a document of Christian formation designed to call the church to faithfulness in the face of inevitable conflict with hostile powers. One commentator uh, says that revelation functions in the interest of spiritual purity, single-minded devotion to God, first commandment faithfulness. Now, I didn't get to get into this. The writer of Revelation is very familiar with the Old Testament. We've got images from Daniel, Ezekiel, Exodus, on and on it goes. The, 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 there are hundreds of references in Revelation to Old Testament imagery. And so it shouldn't surprise us that, that a pastoral prophetic approach to understanding the symbols has to do with us saying, you shall have no other gods before me. That, that it's a call back. So he says, if we read Revelation poetically, we conclude that Babylon is not merely Rome, as the preterists might, and it's definitely not some future configuration of the Roman Empire in modern Europe, as some futurists would say then its seductive and oppressive power can be felt and must be both named and resisted in the political realities of our own day. Yes, it was Babylon in the first century. It was Rome in the first century. Yes, it is the evil that is driving the things that we read, the political climate behind it, the power uh, that, that is clearly evil in some corners, we're supposed to read that as the great prostitute. So when the imagery of, uh, of Revelation unfolds, and I'll, I'll try to break it down as much, we'll deal with it a lot more next week when we talk about the judgment cycle. But we, we, we have to understand that for me, the best approach is to understand that, yes, to them it meant the first century. Yes, to us it means the 21st century. Yes, there's evil then. Yes, there's evil now. Is that a sign that that there are signs that that the Christ, that the return of Christ is imminent? Yeah. But I don't know what imminent means. Because for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I don't know if we're closer because we're two thousand years closer or if we're not. They revelation was in large part written because they mistakenly thought that the return of Christ was in their lifetime. And that wasn't God's plan. We know that. That's one of the few things about Revelation I'm safe to say. He, he didn't come back then. And he didn't come back in the second century or the third or the fourth or the 13th or the 15th or the 19th or the 20th. God is, is still working his will out in his his, his way for it is his will his work the last paragraph without ignoring the past or the future the focus in revelation is a word to the church in the present it's a word to the church in every present when they read it in the 17th century it was a word to the church in the 17th century Yes, it's informed by the first century. It's informed by the symbolism. But 
Let's look at what we need to learn now. We will do so by grounding our contemporary interpretation of Revelation in its message for the first century church, looking for contemporary analogies in first century to first century realities, while always keeping an eye on the future of God's creation, especially when we get to chapters 21 and 22. All right? Symbols are so much a part of our world that we don't even see them anymore. My grandson's four years old. But if you hand him an iPad, he's going to have it figured out in a heartbeat. Because he knows that this symbol makes something else happen. This icon represents something else. It's not a standalone thing. We don't, we don't dissect the color of the symbol. We know that that symbol leads to something else. And when we read Revelation, maybe my parting shot tonight, think of you're a toddler and it's the tablet. And every symbol means something, yes, but it leads to something else. And at the end of the day, all of it leads to God's unfolding purposes. Should we be afraid of the tribulation? Absolutely. We should be terrified because it represents what God has been holding back. Should we be hopeful that we will avoid the tribulation? I am. You know, if, if you ask me what I hope happens, it's pre-trib. I don't want to be around for it. If you ask me, do I think I deserve to miss it all? I don't. I don't. Chip Thompson is fond of saying, if it was fair, we'd all go to hell. So there's, there's a mystery about it that we haven't unlocked and never will because it's a mystery. It's what, it's what God has chosen to reveal through the vision that he gave his apostle, the vision of Jesus Christ given to the apostle John. Okay. I often said in seminary, I'm not finished, but I quit. <laughs> so um, we will talk more about the symbolism and some practical applications on Sunday. And uh, you guys just got a taste. All right. I'll see y'all Sunday. Thank you. It it strikes me that that symbolism, Reed is interested in that thing because it's what he wants. Right. If, if it didn't do something for him, he wouldn't care what it meant. Exactly. And that this, this is that same thing. It absolutely is. We, we, we want to know how the game is going to end. You know, Reed, Reed wants to know how many cookies he's got to collect in order to have it say, you're a winner. And we want to know how many cookies we've got to collect. We, we want to know, uh, and, and, and God has not given that to us, I think, to, to make sure we stay interested in the game.